0: We've learned that we can't take out of a bird what has not been bred and fed into
1: it. The Outline, World Dispatch. It's Monday, September 18th, 2017. I'm Gabby Del Valle. Today on The Dispatch, I talk to author Rachel Sherman about how the wealthy talk about themselves.
2: Now, in wealthy people's circles, they have this concept of the high net worth individual.
1: And I talk to Tanya Golash boza about border security. There are fewer
0: people attempting to enter the United States than in any
1: time, at least in the past 20 years. Here's the dispatch. Power. Rachel Sherman is the author of the new book, Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence. In the book, she talked to affluent New Yorkers about how they feel about their wealth and their place in society. A portion of the book appeared last week in the New York Times, and it sparks some debate about the wealth gap in New York and beyond. Rachel is here with us now. Hi, Rachel. Hi. So for your book, you spoke to people that the average person would call rich, but they don't like to refer to themselves as affluent. What ways do they prefer to describe themselves? Well,
2: I think a lot of them would prefer to talk about themselves as comfortable or lucky. Um, Those are the words. I didn't ask them to identify themselves. So, you know, this is sort of just what would come up in, in conversation, but they, I don't think any of them would use the word rich. I think the word rich has a negative connotation, actually. I think the word wealthy, to a certain extent, uh, also does. Now, in wealthy people's circles, they have this concept of the high net worth individual.
1: And who did you talk to for this book? Well, I interviewed fifty
2: people with incomes of over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Um, the vast majority of them had incomes much higher than that. Some of them, the income is a little bit hard to estimate because they're primarily living on inherited assets of a million, five million, ten million. in a few cases, over fifty million. We have about twenty five percent inherited wealth, primarily people, and then about, people who work in finance or related industries, some of whom also have inherited wealth. But all of them were parents and all of them lived mostly in New York City. A few of them live in the
1: suburbs. You mentioned before that they are uncomfortable with the term wealth and with things that allude to how wealthy they are. What is it about their wealth that makes them so uncomfortable?
2: I think that now, along with these shifts in the composition of the upper class and sort of culture of upper classness or of broad views about wealthy people, as well as more recently with the Great Recession and the kind of emergence of Occupy Wall Street and, you know, higher levels of inequality that are very highly recognized now publicly, um, there's more of a sense that wealthy people need to deserve their wealth. But the other thing that I'm talking about is this sort of imperative to not appear to be spending your money ostentatiously or to be materialistic. So the people that I interviewed. Were really invested in, you know, framing their needs as normal, as their consumption as normal. Normal is a word that they use a lot. You know, they they were all parents, so they're talking about the the needs of their kids as kind of paramount. They talk about how they save money, you know, when they go shopping. They're never bragging to me about how much money they have, and when they do talk about spending a lot of money, they talk about it as kind of an exception or a treat.
1: And you mentioned that some of them try to hide how much they spend from the people they employ, which I thought was really interesting.
2: Yeah. I talk about one woman whom I interviewed who said she takes the price tags off of her clothes. And and I want to point out, um, this isn't in the piece, but she, she said, I, she said something like, you know, I take my, the tags off my Levi's jeans. It's not like I'm buying a mink coat. So that's an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about when I say they're, they want to be like normal consumers, right? She's, she wants to point out that she's buying, like, regular people clothes, um, but she still takes the tags off because she's uncomfortable with the difference in, you know, standard of living and, and class position between herself and her nanny. But well, the thing I think is important to point out about those kinds of examples is that, of course, you know, the nanny knows that her employer has money. It, it's not – there's what's obscured there is not – like literally that fact. And I think what's happening in some of these practices, including not talking about it and people were, you know, many people were kind of uncomfortable talking to me about specific numbers of their assets and so on. They're, they're kind of trying to minimize the discomfort they feel to themselves, right? It's not that they're super comfortable and they just don't want the nanny to know how happy they are with their millions of dollars. They're also invested in not feeling affluent,
1: Did you ever ask any of these people how much they pay their household staff? Because my first thought was if you're so uncomfortable with the wealth gap between you and your nanny, like, why don't you just pay your nanny more? But I guess that also depends on how much they're paying the nanny. (laughs)
2: Yeah. And I mean, that was a. I think that might be the prime. I haven't read all the times piece comments, but that was one very common one. Um, and I really find that a, a, a very fascinating logic. So I don't remember actually whether I asked that particular woman, how much she paid her nanny, but some of them I did ask and, you know, most of them pay the going rate. It kind of depends on how many kids you have or, you know, be for housekeepers and nannies somewhere between, uh, 15 and maybe $22 an hour. So, I don't think any of them paid more than, you know, they didn't say like, well, I have a lot, so I'm going to pay you $30 an hour instead of $20 an hour. But I think the bigger question is, you know, if this woman, if all of the people that I interviewed paid their nannies more, paid their housekeepers more, that wouldn't do anything in terms of, you know, changing the um, structural, political, economic factors that are creating this kind of inequality.
1: Roughly speaking, how many of the people that you spoke to would you say would support policies that would result in them being taxed more. So other people could have healthcare or subsidized college or something like that, that could level the playing field, not really level the playing field entirely, but that could be a step in doing so.
2: You know, one guy that I interviewed who had a pretty significant amount of inherited wealth, like enough money that he told me it didn't, matter how much money he spent on anything. He said, I would be happy to pay more taxes because then everybody would be paying more taxes and I would still be consuming at a level, you know, that would be perfectly comfortable. So I think that that logic of we can just bring down, you know, that maybe nobody needs a hundred million dollars or, you know, a billion dollars or 50 billion dollars, um, can be used to support ideas about more distributive uh, tax policy.
1: Do any, did any of these people seem to resent the way that people who aren't wealthy talk about wealth and rich people?
2: Well, I mean, it's funny because they're clearly operating against those kinds of discourses, right? So they're like, you know, I hate those McMansions or, as I said before, you know, I buy my clothes at Target or I, you know, I shop at Costco. Um, They don't want to, some of them talk about being kind of self-conscious about, you know, having people over to their homes, especially when they have friends or family who are less wealthy than they are. Because I think they're working often not to identify as wealthy. They don't don't have a defense of themselves as wealthy people against that kind of critique, if that makes sense.
1: Did you get a lot of comments saying that you were defending wealthy people? I think some people think about
2: that. I'm that it sort of seems like I'm trying to make wealthy people more sympathetic. And I, there were some comments that are like, "Oh, Cry Me a River, rich people, you know, like it's still better to be rich than it is to be poor." <laughs> and I think wh- what the thing that the comments on the Times website and on Facebook and some other places made me think about. You know, in some ways, not all of them, but some of them really show how entrenched our desire to judge rich people is. You know, many people commented like, well, I have money, but I I work hard. And I'm saying that's my point, is to take a step back from these moral criteria of hard work, you know, reasonable consumption, giving back, and to then think about these kind of structural allocations of inequality.
1: Thanks, Rachel. Oh, thank you for having me. Rachel Sherman is an associate professor of sociology at the New School. Her new book, Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence, is available now. Power. Two weeks ago, the Trump administration announced the end of Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. The program lets some young undocumented immigrants legally live and work in the United States, but it doesn't provide a pathway to citizenship. Last week, Democrats Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi sat down over Chinese food with Donald Trump and reached a tentative agreement. Democrats would support more enforcement at the border in exchange for DACA.
0: —But it was a very, very positive step for the president to commit to DACA protections without insisting on the inclusion of, or even a debate about, the border wall.
1: Their agreement isn't finalized yet, but it could include more drones, sensors, and other technology along the Mexican border. Democrats aren't giving Trump his wall, but they might be giving him something better. If the deal does go through, Trump gets to seem like he's softening his stance on immigration, even as he calls for more deportations, fewer refugees, and a reduction in green cards. Democrats get to look like they're willing to reach across the aisle and work with the Trump administration, even as deportations keep increasing. Everyone wins. Everyone, that is, except undocumented immigrants. Tanya Golash boza is a sociology professor at the University of California at Merced and author of several books on immigration, including Deported, Immigrant Policing, Disposable Labor, and Global Capitalism. I wanted to talk to her about what it really means to increase enforcement on the border, even without the wall. So what is the difference between enforcement with a wall versus enforcement with drones and lasers and all of the possibilities that were mentioned in the Pelosi and Schumer statement?
0: So um, I don't know what the difference is, but the similarity is that it is 95% spectacle. At the moment, there are fewer people attempting to enter the United States than in any time, at least in the past 20 years. So at the same time, there's more enforcement than ever in our history. So we have 13,000, at least 13,000 Border Patrol agents stationed at the border. Those agents apprehend, on average, Two people a month so they're basically mostly just sitting there waiting to for people that are not coming across the border to come in so it's just it's 95 percent spectacle um, it's an either way it's an extreme waste of money it has nothing to do with keeping immigrants out of this country
1: what is the is there a benefit to providing these alternative tech based quote unquote compromises in very, in very simplistic terms, which is the term that Donald Trump seems to prefer to
0: use, he got to this office saying he's going to build a wall. So he's kind of under pressure from his constituency to build an
1: actual wall. So drones, lasers probably won't do it. Hasn't increased enforcement also prevented people from, people who had previously entered the U.S., work seasonally and leave, like hasn't it made it harder for them to, come back and forth and almost force them to be here?
0: Yeah. So that's one argument that is pretty well empirically shown is that the, the, the more border enforcement we have, the fewer people leave because, like, it, and I mean, circular migration is pretty much over. People don't circularly migrate anymore. Like, even though there used to be more apprehensions along the border, a lot of times those people were people that actually lived here who had just, like, temporarily gone to Mexico and then have coming back.
1: The the statement that they released is so vague, they said that DACA is going to be enshrined into law, but DACA is this incredibly, not vague, but like, it's just like leaving people in limbo forever. It's
0: a turn away from the way we've normally treated immigrants. So throughout the history of the United States, when you have people that have spent most of their lives here, contributed to society, there have been pathways to legalization. So this would be a switch, a move away from that.
1: Thanks, Tanya. Thank you. Tanya Golashboza is a sociology professor at the University of California at Merced and the author of Deported, Immigrant Policing, Disposable Labor, and Global Capitalism. That's it for The Dispatch. I'm Gabby Del Valle. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories.